Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the arrest of the subway shooter in New York who had terrorised the city having exploded smoke grenades in a subway car on Tuesday and fired 33 shots wounding 10 people before disappearing with the panicked passengers onto another train. Joining us to discuss the irony that our right-wing Supreme Court is poised to overturn the 100-year-old law in New York restricting firearms so that New Yorkers on the subway will soon have to live with red state open carry and concealed carry permissive laws allowing more deranged and dangerous people to threaten the public. Joining us is Saul Cornell, the Paul and Diane Gunter Chair in American History at Fordham University and the author of A Well-Regulated Militia, the Founding Fathers and the Origins of Gun Control in America, Whose Right to Bear Arms Did the Second Amendment Protect? His latest book is The Second Amendment Goes to Court. Then, as the Russian military consolidates and reorganizes its forces ahead of the decisive battle in eastern Ukraine, which Putin is determined to win and cannot afford to lose, we will speak with Timothy Fry, a professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University. His books include Building States and Markets After Communism, The Perils of Polarized Democracy, and his latest book is Weak Strong Men, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia, and he joins us to discuss his article at Politico, Why Regime Change in Russia Might Not Be a Good Idea. Then finally we will look into both the daunting and rigged electoral landscape the Democrats are facing in November and in 2024, and the possibility that there is a path to stop an authoritarian takeover of America with the Republicans bent on imposing an illiberal one-party state that their hero Viktor Orban has created in Hungary. Joining us to discuss the hope and the horror is David Farris, a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. He joins us to discuss his article at the week, Countdown to the Democrats' Doomsday, Can the GOP Win a Filibuster-Proof Trifecta in the Next Three Years? And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Saul Cornell, who's the Paul and Diane Gunter Chair in American History at Fordham University and the author of A Well-Regulated Militia, The Founding Fathers and the Origins of Gun Control in America, Whose Right to Bear Arms Did the Second Amendment Protect? And his latest book is The Second Amendment Goes to Court. Welcome to Background Briefing, Saul Cornell. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And you teach at Fordham, uh, which is in the Bronx, which is actually where the... uh, the shooter, the 62-year-old man, Frank James, who was just arrested today, 
in the East Village in New York and who was responsible for the shooting of 10 people. 23 people in total were injured. Uh, it's got the whole city of New York in a state of panic. So tell me about uh, the mood now. The mayor of New York seems to be quite triumphant that they caught him, but not without some problems with the MTA having almost all of its subway cameras inactive. The police communications broke down in the subways as well. So there's a lot of faults emerging here amongst the relief that this guy was caught. And of course, there's the aspect of of guns, which is uh, your specialty in the sense that he tried to scratch off the serial number on his Glock, which he left behind in the subway car, along with a credit card and keys to a rental van. So he wasn't exactly a dangerous terrorist, uh, but nevertheless, he's being charged under a terrorism statute to do with terrorism aboard trains or transit. So where to begin, Saul? What's where your... to begin, indeed. Well, I mean, I think I would say that uh, rather than say that he was not a dangerous terrorist, I think he probably got a, got a D in terrorist school, which thank God for that, because he clearly was not very uh, well-prepared, well-trained, well or very thoughtful about how he went about this. But he still managed to cause tremendous harm, and uh, it's just a miracle that nobody was killed in, in this carnage. So thank God for that, for sure. Um, I mean, what's what I find most chilling about this is, well, first of all, I was teaching today, and one of my students uh, – who lives in that part of Brooklyn, said that her brother was on the train right before that one. So, I mean, you know, you realize that this can happen to anyone at any time in America, particularly given our uh, in, inability to to institute a, a gun regulatory uh, framework that actually keeps people safe. So it, it's very sobering to, to, to have this happen on the New York City subway. And what makes it even more, you know, potentially frightening is I was also looking over the oral argument in this Supreme Court case, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which will be decided and which everyone seems to think that the Supreme Court is going to strike down New York's law, which has been on the books for over a century. And there is actually a moment in the oral argument where Justice Kagan says to Paul Clement, who's arguing for the gun rights side and is the former solicitor general what about the new york city subway and and you know uh, clement seems to somewhat lightheartedly concede well i'll give you that one justice maybe not on the subway but this guy bought his gun in ohio which has virtually minimal if any meaningful gun regulation and it was very easy for him to travel east and 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 and, and one can only imagine what will happen when New York, which is a much tighter gun regulatory uh, regime, when it is forced to become more like Ohio. So that does worry me. Well, it should worry the Supreme Court, but I think the predictions are fairly sober, aren't they? That uh, this new supermajority of ultra conservatives will strike down what is it, 100 year long law in New York? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone, based on your argument, uh, thinks that's the case. Of course, it's quite remarkable that this court, which has pledged itself to originalism, 
would decide to strike down a law that, first of all, quite literally uh, dates to the era of the 14th Amendment, because the New York statute in question is based on a model that emerged at the time of the 14th Amendment. And literally, in, in the Dobbs case, which is about abortion, Justice Alito said, can you show me any examples from the era of the 14th Amendment of the kind of uh, protection for abortion that you're, you're positing as part of our history and tradition? And the evidence for gun regulation is overwhelming. Um, and yet, you know, apparently it's originalism for abortion, but living constitutionalism for guns. So the Supreme Court, uh, at a time when its prestige and uh, the perception of it as being a nakedly political institution is among the, the, the most, uh, uh, you know, low point in terms of prestige of the Supreme Court in recent memory, they're very likely to um, use the gun issue to uh, prove the point of the harshest critics of the Supreme Court, because there's just the best arguments for striking down New York's gun law are not originalists. They're living constitution arguments, which is anthema to the to the to, to the right wing of the court. But apparently originalism doesn't really apply when it's something that's important to their political base. And again, I'm speaking with Saul Cornell, who's the Paul and Diane Gunter Chair in American History at Fordham University and the author of A Well-Regulated Militia, The Founding Fathers and the Origins of Gun Control in America, Whose Right to Bear Arms Did the Second Amendment Protect? And his latest book is The Second Amendment Goes to Court. So is it too late for them to change their mind? Have they already reached a decision? Because it's just so counterintuitive, the idea that you're going to have these lax gun laws that you have in most of the red states in a big city like New York that for over 100 years has had restrictions on open carry and concealed carry? Well, I guess the the best way to uh, um, speculate is, is there any shame left at the Supreme Court? <laughs> and I'm not sure if constitutional shame is, is, is a value that has survived uh, the the nakedly partisan appointments to the Supreme Court that we've seen of late. I mean, it, it is kind of ironic that you know, Amy Comey Barrett is 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 constantly saying you know don't think we're politicians and and they apply their theories selectively. Uh, their 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 decisions seem to uh, be easily uh, predicted by who appointed them. Uh, so, I mean, it seems to me the Supreme Court is is basically engaged in constitutional suicide in terms of its reputation. I mean, I, I don't know, based on what they're likely to do this term, whether the Supreme Court will have any credibility in American life by next fall. So in terms of the gun control issues that we're talking about with the Supreme Court, this guy, by the way, fired 33 shots in a subway car, and he wounded 10 people. So it's a miracle that more people weren't killed or injured. But nevertheless, two days or a day before, President Biden had stepped up and made a speech about gun control or gun safety, I guess is how people like to refer to it nowadays, particularly banning ghost guns. The idea that you would have a problem banning ghost guns that don't have any serial numbers that can be manufactured on at home on a 3D printer. I mean, that's, this is madness, isn't it? That in this country, that's a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. It's a no-brainer. Of course you shouldn't allow untraceable guns that can be manufactured at home without serial numbers to be marketed, and yet they are. And Biden is taking on gun control, and 
the political punditry says, oh, you know, that's a, it's a no-win situation. So how do you see it, Saul? Well, uh, he's also trying to nominate a head of the Bureau of Alcohol, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, who clearly played a key role in uh, nailing this person involved in this Brooklyn uh, shooting. Um, and of course, ATF hasn't had a director for a very long time. And one of the things gun rights people like to say is, you know, don't pass new gun laws, but you know, don't just enforce the laws on the books. But yet, if you look at their behavior, they won't even allow you to nominate uh, a director of ATF. Even more absurd, uh, ATF can't um, computerize many of their records because there's a paranoid fear about, um, you know, gun registration. Of course, you know, it's, again, ironic that people who champion the Second Amendment would prevent government from figuring out who has guns, because it does raise the question how they think the 18th century militia got mustered. You know, you know, they weren't flash mobs. I mean, obviously, government knew who was in the militia, and they inspected weapons, and they fined you if you didn't keep your weapon properly stored. So, you know, the whole culture around the Second Amendment that we've created is it's like a bizarro version of the real history. I mean, it really harks back to those Superman comics or that famous Seinfeld episode where the world is almost the inverse of what the reality is. But that's kind of the world that um, many in Congress and uh, those who uh, pull the levers of power uh, behind Congress through their financial uh, and political uh, machinations, that's the world they've created. Well, the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, and then it goes on to talk about the not abridging the right to bear arms, which is what the Heller decision put the cart before the horse. And well, radically. you're right. They literally, in Heller, Scalia literally said, let's read the second part first, which uh, right. Justice Stevens pointed out had never been done in American history. And, you know, unless you're reading in Arabic or Hebrew, we all usually read from, you know, one side of the page to the other. We don't go to the end and move backwards. Right, but the Second Amendment says necessary for the security of a free state. We are neither secure or free. If you can't go into a mall, if you can't go into a church, if you can't go into a subway car without the risk of some lunatic shooting you. This is America today. It's madness. I don't understand how... This whole situation has been turned on its head and why it's such a heavy lift to do anything about this insanity that's loosened the land. Well, I think you're quite right. I mean, the founders feared anarchy as much as they feared tyranny, and they realized that anarchy was typically the prelude to tyranny because, you know, as we've seen time and time, and time again over history, you know, whether it's the Roman Republic or Weimar Germany, when there is anarchy, invariably that leads to the emergence of tyrants. So uh, there's very little doubt among anyone who really understands the 18th century that the modern gun debate, debate over the Second Amendment, has nothing to do with the way uh, the people wrote our Constitution and the Second Amendment understood these issues. It's completely an artifact of the dysfunctionality of modern American culture where we have a very easy time, you know, railing against tyranny, but we seem to have forgotten that anarchy poses an equally, you know, problematic danger to a free society. Well, ironically, we're at a point where liberty 
it's threatening life and the pursuit of happiness. Yes, I mean, you know, the, the idea was that, that, that liberty would facilitated uh, life and the pursuit of happiness, but anarchic liberty clearly threatens that. So, I mean, essentially what the gun rights movement is trying to do is they're trying to create a kind of Hobbesian state of nature. Uh, and, of course, the founders were not great fans of Hobbes. He was among the more despised figures from English political thought. Uh, but yet we have many, many in the gun rights community whose, whose vision is really Hobbes's idea of, you know, the war of all against all, you know, the state of nature where the life of man is solitary, nasty, brutish, and short. Well, that's increasingly becoming America. And, um, you know, the whole idea behind the Constitution was not to adopt Hobbes's solution to that problem, which was the all-powerful Leviathan, but rather to create uh, a government of checks and balances, one that, that protected liberty but did not um, facilitate anarchy. I mean, people seem to forget that the reason we have the Constitution is because many, many uh, of the people who we call the founders were afraid that the, the Articles of Confederation was leading America down the path to anarchy, and that's why we have the Constitution. Uh, instead, we have this kind of libertarian fantasy about the Constitution that has almost no relationship to the historical reality. Well, Saul Cornell, I thank you for joining us here today, and um, I'm glad that this nightmare in New York is over. Yes, we are all glad in the New York area about that. Thank you so much for uh, reaching out to me. And again, I've been speaking with Saul Cornell, who's the Paul and Diane Gunter Chair in American History at Fordham University and the author of A Well-Regulated Militia, The Founding Fathers and the Origins of Gun Control in America, Whose Right to Bear Arms Did the Second Amendment Protect? And his latest book is The Second Amendment Goes to Court. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the upcoming decisive battle in eastern Ukraine, which Putin is determined to win and can't afford to lose. There is no And joining us now is Timothy Fry, a professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University, whose books include Building States and Markets After Communism, The Perils of Polarized Democracy, and his latest book is Weak Strong Men, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia, and he has an article at Politico, Why Regime Change in Russia Might Not Be a Good Idea. Welcome to Background Briefing, Timothy Fry. Thank you very much. So just yesterday in Moscow, the dissident Vladimir Karakmurza was arrested just after he did an interview on CNN where he predicted that the Ukraine war would bring down Putin and Putin would be replaced by a Democrat. This in the face of the latest Levada poll coming out of Moscow that has Putin at an 83% approval rating with 15% disapproving. So there's a, a disconnect there. And what do you make of it? Well, there's a, a lot to unpack. Uh, start with the last. Uh, the 83% approval rating is something that we should consider with some caution in that I think at the moment there's 
broad support for the war effort uh, in Russia. But I think that support is also pretty conditional on how well things go in Russia, in Ukraine, and how the economy holds up uh, in Russia. I mean, most Russians uh, don't get up in the morning and think, my life would be that much better if only we controlled half of eastern Ukraine. Uh, survey evidence before the war suggested that most Russians were perfectly content with the Ukrainians having their own state. So the 83% figure might measure or, uh, an honest even, we're not sure about that even, response to a question that just gives a simple yes or no answer. But I think there's a lot that's hiding beneath uh, that high approval rating. So I think those approval ratings are much more conditional, much more shallow um, than uh, uh, the Kremlin would like. Um, and as for uh, Vladimir Karamurza, for whom I have enormous um, respect, um, uh, what I tried to point out in my article was that the outlook should Putin be replaced uh, for a more liberal government in Russia is difficult to predict. On the one hand, Putin's government is a personalist autocracy. That is an autocracy that's run by a single individual rather than one that's run by a party or by the military. And these types of regimes, when the leaders fall, they tend to be replaced by other autocracies uh, um, in which another uh, autocrat simply kicks the other one out. And if that were to happen in Russia, we wouldn't see that, we wouldn't see great political change. However, on other dimensions, you know, the prospects for a more democratic Russia look better. Uh, Russia's uh, unusually well-educated for an autocracy, it's relatively wealthy, it doesn't have a lot of the deep social cleavages, either ethnic or religious, that often plague countries when an autocracy falls. So on these measures, the outlooks for a more liberal open, if not necessarily you know, full-fledged democracy, um, look much better. Uh, so the, the outlook is just much more mixed, I think, than many people realize. So I know the title of your article at Politico, Why Regime Change in Russia Might Not Be a Good Idea. It's not exactly what the thrust of the article is, at least as far as I, I interpret it. And the reality is that there's only a 20% chance that a Democrat would follow Putin if he were ousted. And there is only two ways that could happen, by an internal coup or by mass protest. And at this point, an internal coup looks more likely, and if that were to happen, then somebody even worse than Putin could come along. Isn't that the problem, that there are people in the waiting in the wings, like Nikolai Petrushev and others, that are even worse than Putin? Well, I think that you know, for any political change to happen in Russia, I think we'll have to involve the removal of Putin one way or another. You know, the odds of you know Russia becoming a more liberal policy either by a coup or by a mass mobilization are obviously higher if Putin is not in power uh, than if he is in power. And one way in which policy might change were Putin to leave office is that the hardliners around him uh, don't like the West, but they haven't been so vocal on the Ukraine issue. They don't seem to have the same obsession with Ukraine um, uh, that Putin has. So in the article, what I try to do is to 
show how difficult it is to remove leaders like Putin uh, and to remind people that, you know, removing a leader uh, is often insufficient to bring about the kinds of political change uh, uh, that we would like to see. And on some dimensions, uh, you know, Russia is relatively well-educated, it's relatively wealthy, it's relatively urban. And these are all things that tend to go along with uh, more open, more competitive political regimes. Um, weighing against that is that Russia is a personalist autocracy where one person has ruled for a long period of time. And when leaders in those type of systems fall, they tend to be replaced by somebody who uh, is also uh, 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 of an autocratic bent. So the article is really an attempt to use the social science literature to kind of help us understand what it would take to oust Putin and what the regime might look like uh, in a post-Putin Russia. So, Timothy Fry, over the course of this war and many years before this, but just more recently, a lot of the specialists I've talked to and I myself have assumed that since Putin wrote that long essay, what, last year, 5,000-word essay about how the Ukrainians and the Russians are one people. I was assuming, as, as others were, that the body bags coming home and this war would actually, the Russian people would find it appalling. But no, they're cheering it on. So why am I and others wrong? So yeah, I, I have your sentiment too. And in the past, Russian public opinion had been pretty sensitive to casualties and the Kremlin had really tried uh, uh, to avoid them. One difference, though, now is that the Kremlin has completely wiped out alternative sources of information for most Russians. You know, even the pockets of independent media that were very important for Russian public opinion prior to the war have been completely decimated. So most Russians are only getting their news from the uh, state media, which paints a wholly different picture of what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. Also, there's evidence that um, publics, uh, even in the U.S., this is the case, will tend to accept body counts as long as they think the war is being prosecuted well, uh, capably, and that ultimately uh, the country will prevail. So this is what we saw in the Vietnam War, is that you know Americans were willing to accept um, uh, casualties as long as they thought the outcome was, was going to be a positive one. But that changed dramatically after the Tet Offensive when it was clear that this was going to be a much longer and bloody slog with an uncertain outcome. And I think we're likely to see something similar in Russia. Also, you know, it's difficult in the immediate aftermath of such a traumatic event for people to speak out against their government, even more so in the repressive environment uh, in Russia. I have um, a lot of colleagues who fled Russia, uh, and some of those who've stayed and have tried to protest have gotten their heads cracked open. So, um, you know, there are real costs to expressing opposition to the war. We haven't seen anything like 
the outpouring of euphoria that happened after the annexation of Crimea that cut across all demographic groups. I think what we're likely to see in Russia is a great fracturing of Russian society where young people will be opposed uh, to the war and older people will continue to support it. And we'll get a situation something like we had in Vietnam in the United States where the young, where families really fracture along this fault line. And again, I'm speaking with Timothy Fry, who's a professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University, whose books include Building States and Markets After Communism, The Perils of Polarized Democracy, and his latest book is Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. And he has an article at Politico, Why Regime Change in Russia Might Not Be a Good Idea. Apparently, though, so far, Timothy, the most of the casualties, a lot of the casualties came from the north and the siege of, of Kiev, where they use conscripts, and a lot of the conscripts are poor kids from the way out, you know, near Mongolia and places like that, and in Dagestan. But now it seems that the Russians have recalibrating their failed initial strategy of trying to take up too much territory, and now they're going to just concentrate on taking the Donbass and regroup, and unless. Ukraine gets the kind of weapons they keep asking for. And for the life of me, I don't understand why NATO and the U.S. can't supply them. I think they might be facing a major, not so much a defeat, but a a tremendous degradation of Ukraine's um, fighting power. We don't even know at this point how many casualties the Ukrainians have suffered. We know that the Russians have suffered a lot, but assuming this war will go on and there'll be an element of attrition... It's likely that Putin could have at least something he could call a victory in the near future. It's possible. Um, It's a lot of territory for Russia to occupy. And the terrain in eastern Ukraine is more conducive to the Russian military, open spaces, Uh, where tanks can roll more easily. Uh, But we've also seen very low morale among uh, the Russians, not a great willingness uh, uh, to fight, in part because, uh, uh, you know, it's not clear what they're really fighting for. Um, You know, the slogans of denazification and stopping the genocide in Ukraine, I think when, you know, Russian soldiers see that this really can't be uh, what's going on when they uh, uh, are not hailed as liberators when they arrive. So, uh, and, the, and the Ukrainians have shown great skill and ingenuity um, in fighting back. And what we could see is a long, bloody attempt by Russia to occupy eastern Ukraine, uh, perhaps with insufficient troops to really take control and continued insurgency warfare conducted by the Ukrainians uh, with weapons delivered uh, in a variety of ways uh, from the West. So we could see a bloody stalemate and standoff in eastern Ukraine um, that would really cause tremendous damage on, on both sides and really turn into a war of attrition. Well, President Biden's expected to announce uh, today another $750 million in military assistance to Ukraine. He had a long conversation with Zelensky, apparently, who provided him with a kind of shopping list. And obviously, 
NATO can't do the no-fly zone. They made that clear, and they can't put boots on the ground. But I'm assuming there's a lot more that they could do because it seems that at this point we're in a kind of make-or-break situation for Ukraine because the Russians have sort of, to some extent, learned from their first mistakes. And I think the troops they have now aren't undisciplined and maybe a little bit better motivated. But still, when you have a president talking about genocide, that the Russians are committing genocide, isn't there a gap between the notion of genocide, which is a horrific notion, and kind of piecemeal support for these brave Ukrainians? Actually, I've been surprised by how um, robust has been Western support for uh, Ukraine. Um, The no-fly zone is... Uh, you know, really uh, something that works best when it's not needed, um, as in Iraq, where there wasn't really an air force to really contend with. Now, I think you really would see the possibility of a direct conflict between NATO and Russia. And I think, um, you know, there's great reluctance to step into that um, uh, situation. And, you know, the logistical problems of getting so many weapons uh, into the hands of the Ukrainian, that I think is really where the backlog is. Just the sheer effort to get that many javelins and anti-tank missiles and uh, mines and other weapons into the hands of the Ukrainian takes a, a lot of effort. And, uh, you know, Zelensky is always going to say that we need more, we need more. But to my mind, I've been, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised um, by how uh, much, how many weapons that NATO has been able to get into Ukraine. The other issue, and I hope this continues, is uh, uh, Europe's reaction with uh, the announcement that it looks like Finland and Sweden are really stepping up efforts to join NATO, and even Germany attempting to increase military spending. And, you know, it would be helpful if they were to um, reduce dramatically uh, their purchases of Russian gas. Because what happens on the ground in Ukraine is really important. So much depends on that. But also what happens in Russia is very important as well. And Putin has long been a leader who has tried to uh, avoid any kind of domestic instability or large-scale protest. And if he were to sense that Russia was becoming ungovernable because it didn't just have the money to pay uh, state workers, that factories were closing down because they didn't have access to the parts they need, and that there was the threat of popular unrest, that might cause him to pull back as well. Um, So I think we need to look at what happens on the ground in Ukraine, and we also need to look at what's happening on the ground in Russia. Well, the main tank factory is shut down now in Russia because of, they can't get the chips that they were getting yeah. before yes. from the West. So to some extent, that's already happening. Yeah. But how does the West, how does NATO and Ukraine get out of this trap that they're in where they're financing the enemy? They're financing the aggressor who's killing them. Uh, they're trading with the enemy. It's, it's never happened before in geopolitics as far as I know. 
Yeah, I mean, there was trading with Nazi Germany well into the 1930s by, uh, you know, U U.S. companies uh, as well. Not so much during the war, right, but the uh, certainly in the lead up, uh, there, there was, um, uh, you know, and there was considerable, well, pockets of sympathy for the Nazi effort in the United States, too, um, uh, in, in the 1930s. But nevertheless, the key issue of trying to cut off any sources of funding for uh, the Russian state um, is really a key issue. And, you know, the sanctions have done a lot to cut into Russia's ability to finance its own operations. You know, the sanctions on the Russian Central Bank, which cut in half, basically, the stockpile of reserves that Putin had amassed over the last uh, 20 years was really a, a masterstroke, uh, I think, by, um, uh, by the Western countries. And really the key issue is the continued purchase of oil and gas by European countries and to a lesser extent by China uh, and India uh, and Japan that continues to provide you know, between 500 and $700 million a day in funding for the Russian government when other sectors have really suffered big hits. Estimates suggest that GDP will fall between 10 to 15 percent uh, uh, in Russia in this year alone. And I don't think that the um, outlook is going to look any rosier in the future, given the pullout of Western companies, the brain drain that is really hitting Russia with hundreds of thousands of its most skilled workers leaving the country. You know, and this really does not bode well for Russia's economic future. And it's really a tragedy. I look at the you know, whole generation of, of Russians who uh, have seen their futures wiped out and all the progress that Russia has made in building a market economy over the last 30 years just wiped out in the span of six weeks. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Timothy Fry, this does seem to be a critical moment, and not that there haven't been prior ones, but if Russia is to succeed in its what Putin calls its noble aims in this big battle in the East where they're going to try and encircle the Ukrainian army, would you agree that this is a kind of a make-or-break situation, that we will regret not having supported the... Ukrainians sufficiently if they are defeated or if they're depleted. So how do you think this thing is going to play out now? Well, you know, I, I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to say right now. Um, but I will say I think the West has done a lot um, to help Ukraine in levying sanctions on Russia, which have been greater than I expected, certainly greater than Putin uh, expected. And the Western response to support Ukraine has been much greater uh, than Putin expected. You know, whether it's enough to turn the tide um, is, is really hard to know. Somebody made the analogy that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians have been much better uh, on the, the military chessboard, but Russia has, you know, a hundred more pawns than Ukraine. So one uh, thing to consider is just how costly can the Ukrainians make it uh, to Russia to take control even of eastern Ukraine 
And, you know, the West should be doing everything it can in order to help the Ukrainians in that goal, be it, you know, reducing purchases of oil and gas to Russia and arming the Ukrainians as best that we can. Well, Timothy Fry, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Timothy Fry, who's a professor of post-Soviet foreign policy at Columbia University, whose books include Building States and Markets After Communism, The Perils of Polarized Democracy, and his latest book is Weak Strongmen, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. And he has an article at Politico, Why Regime Change in Russia Might Not Be a Good Idea. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the daunting and rigged electoral landscape the Democrats are facing in November and in 2024, and the possibility that there is a path to stop an authoritarian takeover of America. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Farris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media, Blogging, and Activism in Egypt, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at the week, Countdown to the Democrats' Doomsday. Can the GOP win a filibuster-proof trifecta in the next three years? Welcome to Background Briefing, David Farris. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. And I don't want to be delivering a daily dose of doom. It's bad <laughs> enough with the headlines coming from Ukraine. But for the life of me, I don't understand how the Republican Party could even be competitive given that they have no programs, they have no policies, they don't have a platform. All they have is culture wars, trolling, owning the libs, generating anger and hatred. So is this more an issue for sociologists than political scientists? Do we understand what the appeal is for a party that, only takes care of the super wealthy and just riles everybody up, everybody else up with tangential nonsense. And now they're at war, of course, with beating up on poor gay and transgender kids. I mean, stupid cruelty, idiocy. I don't know. What explains the, any appeal for this party in the first place? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm as mystified as you are. <laughs> Um, in, in the abstract, in terms of uh, because what what the institutional Republican Party is up to right now doesn't doesn't appeal to me. I think it's um, I think it's gross and counterproductive and not in the spirit of governance. But I think the culture war stuff is um, is contributing to a, a general climate of unhappiness um, and and a general climate of unhappiness and dissatisfaction, um, even if it's being in part produced by the opposition party. It's, it's just bad for the party in power, right? And so um, Democrats, as as the party in power, as, as the party that has the presidency and, and both chambers of Congress, 
um, you know, we, we, we get the credit for things that go well, but we also take the fall um, when things don't go well. And, you know, there are some elements of, of how things are going in the United States right now that are not terrible, but there are some very visible things that are still off, you know, um, particularly um, in, uh, the inflation problem, which is really starting to eat into people's earning power. Um, and it's, it's, I think, for a lot of people, not really being offset by, by wage gains or, um, or new jobs. And so the, that's, that's one problem, right? Um, that is, uh, there's, there's, I think, a fairly broad dissatisfaction with the direction of the country. Now, do I think that that blame is properly placed? No. <laughs> I don't think inflation is is the fault of the Democrats. Um, this, it's not the Democrats' fault that the that the virus keeps uh, mutating into into new forms, right? But um, we happen to be the party in power, and most people don't pay all that close attention to politics, and and all they see is they're just not that happy, um, and that that creates a real sense of danger for the Democrats and for the governing party because most people don't see the Republican Party as as you and I do, right? They they see well, there's two parties, they're very similar. Um, you know, they, but either one of them can be trusted. And, uh, if the one that's in power is not doing well, it's really, let's go with the other one, you know? So that's, that's kind of what I see as the general dynamic here, right? The Republicans are poised to benefit from the public's, you know, dyspeptic mood at the moment. So is there a case there that can be made for, not just for the Democrats, but for democracy itself? Given the outrageous voter suppression that's going on and the stacking of of election boards and canvassing boards with these stop the steal lunatics that are getting appointed, and for the first time ever, I think massive amounts of money are going into Secretary of State races, where you've got people that are again these stop the steal acolytes of Trump's. One of the things that I find troubling is that Mitch McConnell who you could argue is sort of the, the number two leader of the Republicans after Trump, he hates Trump. It's obviously clear. You know, in fact, after the insurrection, he gave the Democrats a roadmap in a speech. He said, you know, you can put this guy in jail. He instigated this mm-hmm. whole thing. But shortly thereafter, half of the House Republicans, even after their, their house where they work, was assaulted by this absolute rabid crowd of insurgents, they voted along the lines of stop the steal. They voted for this fiction. So this is where I find it uh, amazing. I think that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are actually using Trump. They they may not like him, but he's the guy that's creating this whole stop the steal narrative, and they're all totally happy with that because they'd rather cheat than compete. I mean, it's not a level playing field, and it's getting worse. No, and I mean the, the threat to American democracy right now is, is very dire. Um, and w- one of my problems with the sort of democratic strategy right now is that I don't think that party leaders are making the case that the Republican Party itself um, is is no longer a party that can be trusted with the reins of power. Um, I, I want to hook them all up to some sort of electric shock machine that they just stop them from from calling it the party of Lincoln. You know, they always get there. I miss the party of Lincoln. I, went, I miss Reagan, you know, and it's like, stop saying stuff like that. Right. Because when you say stuff like that, when you when you yearn for a, a more responsible Republican Party, you are both delusional and <laughs> you are telling the voters that the Republican Party is fundamentally a, a decent and just organization that maybe happens to be led 
by this one person who's who's out there, you know, Donald Trump. But the focus on Trump as the problem with the Republican Party obscures everything that you just said about the complicity of Republican elites um, in the attempted coup in 2020. Clearly, it was a test run for 2024. And a lot of these gubernatorial and, and Senate races are uh, are going to be quite meaningful when when it comes time to to, to perpetrate that coup, that coup in 2024. Um, now they they might win out they might win outright right but they are put they are they are laying the groundwork um, to overturn a close election um, in in precisely the way that they failed to do in 2020. And so I don't think that any Democrat should ever speak about the Republican Party without putting the adjective reactionary in front of it. You know, uh, this is one of the most effective things that they do to Democrats. Um, you know, the socialist label, the, the radical label, the, you know, the sick radical left. Um, and we don't even have to make it up, right? <laughs> uh, because the, the story that we're telling about a newly authoritarian, newly radicalized Republican Party that doesn't respect democracy, that is aligned with Vladimir Putin and, and Viktor Orban more so than, than American democracy, happens to really be true. <laughs> um, and so it's very frustrating to me that Democratic Party elites are, seem, seem unwilling to to just take that one additional step and say like, yes, these guys are illegitimate. You know, you, you can't put them back into power if you ever want to have another free election. Um, and so, so some of it's messaging, some of it's the way that we are still worshiping at the altar of bipartisanship, um, because that also communicates a desire to work with a, a legitimate adversary, right? So um, there's, but there's not an easy fix for this, right? Like I, I can't call Chuck Schumer up and tell him to use more, <laughs> more aggressive language. I can just hope he figures it out on his own. To grow a pair, and again, I'm speaking right. with, and again, I'm speaking with David Farris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to the Week. And his latest book is "The Kids Are All Left: How Young Voters Will Unite America." And he has an article at the Week: "Countdown to the Democrats' Doomsday: Can the GOP Win a Filibuster-Proof Trifecta in the Next Three Years?" So, one of the headlines today, David, is that um, Mitch McConnell said yesterday that he's counting on uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema to torpedo the sort of build back better reset or whatever you want to call it. And she's going to make sure that the Trump tax cuts for the super wealthy uh, stay in place. So this is one of the problems we have, isn't it? You've done the math on the Senate races and it's looking pretty dire for the Democrats. It's not great. Um, and it's uh, I mean, it's just evidence that I think two of McConnell and Trump's greatest allies in Congress right now are, are Kirsten Sinema and, and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who are uh, almost single handedly responsible for, for derailing um, President Biden's domestic agenda in ways that I think are really affecting the popularity of the Democratic Party in, in quite consequential ways, because people look at what's happening in Washington. They see gridlock. They see inertia. They see you know, they haven't passed a big bill since the fall. Um, essentially, it was just a COVID relief bill and bipartisan infrastructure, and they, they seem to have just called it a day. Um, and they don't care that it's that it's just these two Democrats in the Senate that are holding everything up. Um, all ordinary people see is, is Washington just once again not working for the American people. Um, and so the, the real downside for Democrats in the Senate is that this year – in 2022 is, is our best Senate map. You know, this is, this is our opportunity um, to make a bunch of pickups in a favorable environment. Um, places like, um, you know, places like North Carolina um, or, or 
seats that we could flip Pennsylvania, um, Wisconsin, uh, in a better national environment, we, we could actually gain seats in this election. The, the problem is that, you know, uh, these races are going to rise and fall with, with President Biden's approval rating. And if he's down around 39, 40% in an average, uh, it's not just that we're not going to make pickups, it's that we, we are at risk of losing um, very winnable races in, in places like um, Georgia, where um, Raphael Warnock is up for re-election, um, New Hampshire, where Maggie Hassan, and Arizona, Mark Kelly. I think Kelly is safe, but but who knows? Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto. I mean, I've seen bad polls of all of these races for Democrats. Um, and so the reality is that we they, Republicans could get to 54 seats this year in, on a map that is favorable to Democrats. <laughs> and then in 2024, we have that terrible 2018 map again. Um, where it is only the extremely democratic national environment that kept us at negative, um, you know, negative three seats in that election. Uh, you know, we could have kicked away six seats if, if President Trump had been just a little bit more popular. People like um, John Tester in, uh, in Montana and Manchin himself in West Virginia, um, these are seats that could have been lost in a less favorable environment. And 2024 does not have a lot of opportunities for, for democratic pickups. Um, there just are not a lot of swing state Senate seats up for re-election or states where there's a Republican and a Biden state. It's just not there. It's like maybe Texas, maybe Florida could be competitive in a good environment, but there's not an easy flip like there has been in the last few elections. So there's a real danger here that if we don't turn out our coalition in November, if we don't get those um, young voters to the polls uh, by, by delivering some good outcomes for them, um, that we, the Democrats could put themselves in such a hole for the U.S. Senate um, that it would, it would take several cycles, starting in 2026, to get it back. Right? And so you're kind of staring at several years, at least in the, in the wilderness here. Um, and it's, it just makes Manchin and Cinema's recalcitrance and sort of refusal to pass even, a, even like a watered-down version <laughs> of Build Back Better, which at this point would be better than nothing. Um, it's, just, uh, it's just so frustrating, and it's... it's it's especially frustrating because there's a there's a powerlessness aspect here, right? Like most of us don't live in Arizona or West Virginia. They don't care what we think, and there's very little we can actually do about it, you know, other than to scream into the wind that it's not <laughs> not the Democratic Party's fault. It's these two. This is these two people, you know. Well, but in 2024, of course, Cinema is up for re-election, and and the Democratic base in in Arizona is absolutely furious with it, but. In 2024, of course, is a presidential election year. I don't see Biden running again, and I'm not sure that the front runner, who would naturally be the vice president, Kamala Harris, that she's not exactly catching on fire. So if you're worried about Biden taking the ticket down now, imagine what it's going to be like in 2024. Yeah, there's a scenario where this gets quite ugly, <laughs> right? Um, because I think if Biden doesn't run... Um, Harris would be, she would have a leg up on the field, but there, there, I think there would also be substantial pushback on her from the kind of the progressive left and the sort of younger voters that 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 portion of the coalition I think is not happy with her. And and President Biden, you know, honestly has not done her any favors by by giving her like the worst portfolio. It's like go down and figure out the border, you know, um, just like a just a lose lose job that he assigned to her, um, and has not I think given her a lot of other high, high visibility work that is um, that is broadly popular but um, I'm not convinced he's not going to run and the the other good thing about the presidential election year 
is that your partisans who are so annoyed with, uh, with the situation right now that they won't turn out this November, most of those people will come back in 2024 <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, I think that they will see the stakes. And if it's Trump, especially even but even if it's like Ron DeSantis or something, you know, these are hateful people. Um, and I think the fear can be a good motivator. I think a lot of those voters will come back in 24 and it won't be as bad, um, but we could lose. And it'll be almost impossible to get the Senate back if we lose it this year. Um, and so I, I just think it's really important to communicate to the Democratic Party's base that the stakes of this coming elect this election in November really they're existential. I know we say that every single cycle, but every single cycle in which you are facing an anti-democratic authoritarian party, the stakes are existential. You just got to say it over and over because <laughs> it's the truth. Right. Well, let's end on a positive note, if possible, here and go back to your earlier article at the week a week or so ago. Democrats could still win in November. No, really. <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and contradict yourself? Sure. Yeah, I know. It's really, this is like uh, um, two, two versions of the same person on the phone with you right now. Um, I, I still think there's a path to victory in, in November. I think it's, it's narrowing every day that there's an action in Washington, but I still, I still think it's there. Um, I think the biggest source of dissatisfaction with, with Democrats is, is inflation and, and the price of goods and services. Um, and the, the Fed is moving to raise interest rates, which you know is of course bad for some people, but in the broader sense, um, they have to get inflation under control. You know, like eight percent year-to-year inflation um, is is hurting a lot of working people. Um, who who and it's it, it doesn't matter that it's not Joe Biden's fault, right? The president is the face of the economy. This drives me crazy about the American electorate, but it is what it is. Um, and so uh, a combination of, of, of raising interest rates and, and doing everything in the president's power, including using the Defense Production Act to get to, to resolve some of these supply chain problems so that the price of cars and appliances and, and things like that, um, those, and groceries is really important. Um, I think that there, there are things that are within the president's power that you can address that, and, and that will alleviate some of, the, uh, some of the negative sentiment around the country. I also think you have got to deliver something to the party's base. Um, sometime between now and November, like just lock Manchin and Cinnamon in a room and, and just tell them what you could get them to say what they will agree to. But some big piece, some big social policy piece of that build back better agenda needs to be passed. You know, if that, if that's paid family leave, that's great. If that's universal daycare, that's great. If that's some student loan relief, that's great. Even one of those things, um, would signal to, to really angry progressives that, that, that there's real, something's happening here. Um, and then, of course, if, if the if the war in Ukraine is over, I think that'll um, that'll lessen some of the tension. Um, I think that that Joe Biden will have benefited in some capacity from his skillful um, negotiation of this conflict and and the support that we have given to Ukraine that appears to have driven the Russians off of their main objective. And then there's the big elephant in the room, Ian, which is the possibility that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, this summer, and that could just that really could scramble the whole landscape. Um, that that a uh, that could be a huge huge motivating factor for for Democratic voters um, to to punish Republicans um, for for putting these people into power who are just running afoul of a, of a working consensus in American society about abortion, and they're going to blow it up. And abortion will be illegal in 2025 states. Uh, it'd just be an absolute nightmare. So. Uh, what is it? Six six months of election. It's a, it's a long time in politics, right? Uh, there's there's time there's time to turn it around. There it seems like everything has broken against the Democrats. Um, 
but uh, but if Omicron really is the, the sort of the endemic end game of the pandemic and the economy comes back, inflation comes down, we have a shot. It's not it's not over. <laughs> that's, okay. all, that's all. I'll Good. I'm glad, I'm glad um, to end on that note. And I thank you for joining us, David Ferris. Thank you for having me in. And again, I mean, speak with David Ferris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. His latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at The Week, Countdown to the Democrats' Doomsday. Can the GOP win a filibuster-proof trifecta in the next three years? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half